think of ourselves as thrown into the grand history of God's redemption of the world. Maybe another way of thinking of that is that we all, as we live in this life, we mark, particularly as Christians, a beginning of the world in creation, however that might have taken place. There is this beginning to a world that God declared good and ordered it. And we sit on the other end of God's history and look forward to a grand consummation. The world is gathered up. The, um, those who cry weep no more. Those who are sick are healed. There is everlasting joy. There's glory and life. But everything else between these two ends is full of waiting and mystery and chaos and uncertainty. It's helpful at least to recognize that's the reality of every human being who walks on the face of the earth. We look out, I know Tuesday, maybe this is on your mind if you consume media, to an election, to a sense of division in the country, within the church, to a sense of chaos and uncertainty. And if we think about this map of God's work of history, it should remind us of the fact that we are not alone. John says in his letter, do not be surprised that the world hates you. Or Paul in his letter today, for there are those who have no faith. I simply want to remind us that we are not unique, as if we've stumbled upon some new moment and there is uncertainty and division and good and evil and the righteous and the wicked in the world around us. This is not new. In fact, if we're to be honest, our situation is far better than most of the globe. Our situation is far better than much of the world's history. We are simply in the world as other human beings who walk through it. There's nothing new about today. And I raise all that because I want to draw upon the scriptures today because they all have something, I think, that helps us. God doesn't leave us in that state helpless and alone to wander. He tutors us. He gives us patterns of way to navigate that space. And I want to just look at the three of those today in the readings. And the first is this. It is God's invitation to bring a lawsuit before him. If you heard that in the psalm today or in the book of Job, Job says, oh, these things might be written in a book or stenciled, carved in stone. Um, you wrote on documents and on stones in legal proceedings in the ancient world. It's not the only place in Job that he asks for a hearing. He's asked to see his accuser face to face. And we should hear that not simply as a story, but as an invitation to stand before the Lord of all the earth and ask him what he is doing in the world. You're not going to hurt his feelings. If you ask him to do justice, if you ask him to give an account for what he has done. Isn't this what the psalmist says? Hear my cause, O Lord. Vindicate me. Those are legal terms. It's issuing God a summons to court. We sue God for justice. The Psalms, in fact, are full of these petitions. I thought this week about this one in Abraham. You may know God meets with Abraham with these three visitors and Abraham bows to them and feeds them and then they move on to Sodom and Gomorrah to go and judge the people there for their wickedness. 
And Abraham trails along because he has family there. He says, God, if there's, if there's 50, will you spare it? God says, if there's 50, I will spare it. And I hope you've heard that passage before you hear it today. It is God's invitation, precisely as we hear in the Psalms, to engage him about justice. Abraham goes on and says, will not the God, the judge of the earth, do justice? He delights to be engaged in this. He doesn't hold us back from saying to him, I look out on the world that I see and I do not see justice in the world that you made. Over half of the Psalms are complaints to God for the status of the world. So I think we should free ourselves as Christians not to say everything must be okay. It's not all okay. And God says, you may stand before me and cry out for justice. I think he has compassion on it. I don't think his feelings are hurt or that he's offended. He wants us to long for justice. He rewards Abraham in this conversation. What if there are 10? No, if there are 10, Abraham, I won't destroy it. You see, Abraham is learning that this is not a God of injustice, despite whatever mysteries may surround him. So as much as we are, though, called to plead with God over injustice, to bring him to court even, we are not permitted to stay in that place in self-pity and accusation. And I mentioned that over half of the psalms are psalms of complaint, not praise. The praises are a fairly smaller amount, maybe a third. There is something about human life that issues forth this complaint, but the psalms, all of them except one, move from complaint to praise and to worship. From uncertainty to hope. And if you lay out all 150 psalms, they move gradually after you get to 90 to 104 and on, more and more praise, more and more hope. And if we read them faithfully, we would see that, that early in the book, there is this chaos, this uncertainty, this sense of loss. But as we get on to Psalms 130 and the Psalms of Ascent, we remember again and again that our God is King. We don't remain in that space forever of complaint, but we look forward in hope. So if the first is God invites complaint, the second is we look for the hope of the resurrection. We must train our minds to look forward. Psalm 17 says today, for when I awake, I will behold you with your likeness. Or actually, if I, when I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. It's such a strange phrase, but there is this sense that those who are wicked, those who try to drink up the goods of this world, those who are unjust and surround me and accuse me, have their fill in this world, but when I awake, I will be satisfied with you. Sleeping was a metaphor for death, and the images of resurrection are rare in the Old Testament. They show up very, very late in Israel's history and really come to the fore with Jesus, which I'll mention in a moment. But here in the Psalm, here in Job, when my skin is peeled back, he says, I will stand on the earth and Behold my Redeemer, face to face. The world and its suffering, what it does to my body, I believe in a day when I will see vindication and justice. So these passages that we have today, like all of the Psalms, move us from complaint into the future hope. If you were able to um, listen this week, Thursday night, we have uh, Robert Emmons, a psychologist who's known for his work in gratitude. And... Um, 
I was gone, and Vivek invited me to spend a few hours with him on Wednesday. And he talked to us about the habit of gratitude, and the habits of hope, and the habits of looking forward to goodness. And one of the things that they notice in psychology is that if we dwell on our grief, and if we dwell on our trauma, or we dwell on our victimhood, or we dwell on what is wrong with the world, we will only become more depressed. Surprise. And the sad thing about this is we train, I think, young people to look on distress. And that's why gratitude, he says, is such a difficult practice that has to be honed as a habit. It is instinctual to stay in that first phase, crying out to God for a vindication, and not to raise our eyes to joy and gratitude and hope. The second phase is what Job does in the midst of his long, long mystery and suffering under God's hand, is to remind himself periodically throughout that story that I know my Redeemer lives and I will see him on the earth. I will see vindication. He won't let go of this future sense of hope and resurrection. Or the psalmist, I will be satisfied when I see you in your likeness and I awake. This is a Christian practice that is not natural to us. It's not habitually easy to us. But it is that second move that we have to practice as people of faith and of hope. This reading in Luke 20 is bizarre that we had today. The Sadducees have come to Jesus and they've disputed with him about the resurrection because the Pharisees do believe in angels and the resurrection and the Sadducees don't. And there's a clue to this story and what's going on is that the Sadducees only believe in the authority of Moses. And this is going on in the background. So they bring this difficult law to Moses. Um, we know of other times that the Sadducees did this to show the absurdity of the resurrection. That if a man marries and is supposed to carry on the, the, the life of a brother by marrying the son and keeping the land and the name in, in um, perpetuity, how absurd will that be if you get to the resurrection? And listen to Jesus' answer. It is very peculiar. For the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. The sons that are worthy of eternal life and of the resurrection do not marry or are given in marriage. Now, our instinct is probably to say, well, there's no marriage in the afterlife and the resurrection. But that's not actually Jesus' dispute. He uses this phrase, marriage and giving in marriage. It's only used about three or four times in the Gospels. And in those times, it is used of those in the days of Noah. Matthew 22 or Luke 17. In the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And the flood came. It's not about food or marriage. It's about people living along in this world as if there's nothing else beyond it. That seems to be the main point of the figure of speech. Not to teach us there's no resurrection. In fact, what Jesus is aiming to do at that point is he quotes, he quotes Moses right back to them. Did not Moses say at the burning bush... I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. Therefore, I am the God of the living. And he wins the dispute, not about marriage, but about resurrection. And I think the thing that's so powerful about that scene is the Sadducees are mocking and absurd about the resurrection. And there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, you have no idea what awaits us in the next life. 
you're worried about marriage and giving in marriage, but in that world, the bliss and the goodness and the union with God will be so good, these things will be trivial questions for us. You know, this is something I leave us with or center us in for a moment and ask you about the frequency or your habits or your skill in imagining that resurrection life. How often do you think about your life raised eternally with God? Free of quirks and sickness and disease and sin. Joyful happiness, healing forever. There's something even more to that, which is really interesting, I think we overlook, is that in the resurrection, it's not like I just get a new body. In the new resurrection, it is Christ's body spiritually united to mine that gives it life. In the resurrection, I'm united to God. I sit permanently bound to him by the Holy Spirit to his body and his life. I love the beloved and he loves me. God makes us one with himself in the resurrection. That vision is endless, it's deep. And if we you know, were to imagine it and meditate on it even for a while, the sense of all that has been given to us is a gift should recenter, and it should bring back perspective to the injustices and the suffering that we face in this life. There is a remedy for us in this world. It is to know that that resurrection that lies ahead is sure, and that it's already at work in us in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5, I no longer regard anyone in this world according to the flesh. For if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. This is what brings us out of the moment of judging God and of despair and a sense of injustice is that already God has begun to make me a new creation in himself. That power is at work within us already. And it ought to begin to bring us out of our sense of loss or our sense of futility in this world. And having gazed upon the future, it brings us back to the present. I think this is what happens in Paul in 2 Thessalonians. Since this hope of glory which has been given to you, Paul says, therefore stand firm in the faith. Paul points forward to the glory promised us and then brings people back to the present and says, stand firm in the practices we gave to you, whether by word or by letter. What were those practices, do you think? Paul doesn't tell us. I wish Paul would say, by the way, which were these things? We do have a pretty good sense from his writings from the early church what those practices were. They were fellowship, scripture, the breaking of bread, prayer, and hospitality. I think what Paul is saying is in the midst of all this, when the hope of the world laid up before you, make it build you into a firm strength. Practice the traditions we passed on to you. Gather with the community and join with one another. I think that's our calling in this world. We look out on a week or on a nation or a world that is divided, and the church comes back on Sunday and says, oh, yes, the resurrection. Let's gather this week and practice unity and love and hope and hospitality and welcome and joy and strengthen one another in it. For this is the mystery, Paul says, isn't it, in Colossians. The hope of glory, Christ in you. Let's give ourselves that to that this week. If you're tossed about in moments of political turmoil, 
the hope of the resurrection, making us firm in faith and joy and unity. Amen.